Hello, 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 and welcome to Season 4, Episode 6 of the I Save That Podcast. I'm Judy Thompson, the Director of Clinical Education for the Association for Vascular Access, and I'd like to welcome you to the I Save That Podcast. I am very excited. I get to talk to our one and only President of the AVA Board of Directors, Jocelyn Hill. Joss. Thanks for joining. Hi, everyone. Hi, Judy. Hi. Greetings from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Joss, I know you guys had a big decision to make a little bit ago about whether or not we're going to be in person versus virtual. And I know that was a tough call. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. You know, honestly, I just want to emphasize that it really was a difficult decision and we we had to make it less than six weeks out, I believe, maybe seven. It was really a tight timeline to make the, the final decision and the board had extensive discussion about it and there was a lot of back and forth. And as we know, it can be um, a very heated debate and sometimes polarizing, but you know, the board really came together and had good, thoughtful discussion with uh, the health and safety of everyone in mind, uh, first and foremost. And I know even five, six weeks ago, the situation that we see with the pandemic is very different today than it was. And it might be different next week. So um, I, I am really excited and happy that we have the staff and the resources to pivot like we did. And it's still something that, you know, something to celebrate. We're going to have a great meeting. I wouldn't have wanted to be in your position to have to make that call, but I fully support it. And I'm really in, you know, when you guys made that decision, it's like, oh man, I miss seeing people so much. But I, the way the pandemic is right now, I don't want to travel Well, I know that, you know, a lot of people are traveling um, within their communities or, you know, across the states there. It's, you know, me specifically, I'm classified as international. So it's hard for the internationals, right? And, but again, just thinking in terms of healthcare systems and, you know, we're, we're, our membership is really healthcare clinicians that, are somehow connected to the healthcare systems. And it it was a hard decision to make. But again, just so grateful and proud of the organization and the staff for being able to literally flip a switch and change to completely virtual, a huge endeavor. Absolutely, absolutely. And I know the folks that our organization supports are already impacted as it is. They're working, you know, awful hours like you are you're you're being worked pretty hard yourself along with running this organization so i gotta thank you about that but let's talk about the goodness yeah you know the the lineup looks amazing i i really want to call out and shout out to the speakers that again were able to pivot to to a, a completely virtual meeting and it i know for yeah i think a lot of us are overworked, overtired, and just kind of done with virtual, but we've really adapted so well, which is amazing. And, um, you know, our, the way we learn and the way we listen and, and participate now is so different 
over the last two years, right? So I think a lot of us have, and what I'm seeing from a lot of the, some of the presentations and hearing from speakers that I know, they've really perfected it, which is fantastic. Right? <laughs> you know, I, I mean, in person, there's nothing like being in person and being able to read the audience and participate as an audience member. But I, I have to say the quality of speakers and the presentations that I've been seeing by webinar or even the podcast or anything really has re uh, is improved so much over the last two years. It's really been a complete shift. So I'm so impressed and I'm so excited to hear from people I know at the conference as well as people I don't know. I think it, it's, it's going to be um, a, a great different way to network. Agreed. And I think the presentations, like you, I've looked through the presentations and start about two thirds of them. It's like, wow, I want to hear that. I want to hear that. So I'm excited about that. If you guys, if you haven't signed up for the conference, you're going to want to do that. Yeah, it, it's going to be um, a great meeting. And again, I, I hope if you haven't registered, please do. And if you know people that haven't, you know, get them on our bandwagon because it, again, we are really, we've really worked hard. The staff have really worked hard and um, to, to put out a fantastic agenda and make it as interactive as possible. So. Agreed. Well, Josh, thanks so much for popping in. I know your schedule is, is pretty tough these days, but I'm looking forward to seeing you kick off the meeting. And yes. Pacific time. It's very early. So it's sure someone is. better be listening. <laughs> We're going to be up quite early, so I, hopefully everybody I out there is going to be able to join us. It'll be fun. And, you know, guys, hold on. We've got another segment coming right behind this. We're following Joss. We've got Dr. Laurel Wirtz talking about a study that was published. Hold on. And we're going to hear a word from our sponsor and be right back with it. Thanks, everyone. This episode is brought to you from our friends and Ava Enterprise Partner, BD. Looking for a midline to meet your vascular access needs? As a fully integrated placement device, the BD PowerGlide Pro midline catheter is designed to be a simplified solution for peripheral IV therapy. Make sure to stop by the BD virtual booth during the 2021 AVA Scientific Conference to discover more about the BD Midline portfolio of comprehensive vascular access devices. Now, I have the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Laurel Wurst. She is the Director of Professional Nursing Practice, Quality and Professional Development at New York Presbyterian Hospital. Welcome. Thanks, Judy. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. We're going to talk today about a publication that came out in JAVA in 2020. So it was the JAVA volume 25, number four, and it is the evaluation processes, outcomes, and use of midline peripheral catheters for the purpose of blood collection. So I'm really excited to talk about this topic. Patients don't want to get poked. Let's be serious. So okay. give me your thoughts on the paper just as an overall. I mean, what this tells me generally is that we have a good small study here. Um, it's not large enough um, for us to make some, some huge practice changes, but what it does for me, Judy, is illuminate the fact that we need more nursing research around midlines, around blood draws, to really understand what's safe for our patients and how we can truly have great evidence-based care 
in terms of managing these lines for our patients. There's some really great pearls of wisdom in here. And there's some really great, you know, continued questions for me um, in terms of, you know, what's safe, what's not. Um, so it's a really great start is what I would say. I agree. It's, you know, we have a sample size of almost 400. So it's a pretty good end. That's, pr that's a great start. And to your point, we need more folks that do this out in the vascular access realm to, to look at these practices that we know we want to do. And most of us do now and then, if not consistently. So I think it, it's truly important to do. And INS, they don't really provide any commentary on this because of the slack of evidence, I believe. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, INS is, is really well you know, done and thought through in terms of the methodology. Anyone can read about that in, in the standards of practice and how they come to make their standards and statements. Um, and and it, there are a couple articles out there, but again, this is just showing us, which, which isn't just unique to this topic in nursing, right? No, not it's at all. To this topic in nursing, but it really shows us a lot in terms of a gap or gaps in terms of nursing practice. So yes, the, the INS is giving us some broad uh, statements around blood draws, around trying to save vasculature, uh, around looking at hemolysis and how we approach blood draws through different types of vascular access devices. But right now, I don't think we have something completely conclusive with midlines, but we've got some really great, you know, intriguing questions to study more. And I love that you brought up hemolysis. So I think that has been one of the big concerns. You know, one is the loss of patency of the catheter. Obviously that's a concern. We don't want to lose that access. But the other is the, uh, the blood draw itself. When we get those labs back and we, or we get the call from the lab and say, oh, it's hemolysized. Go give me some more blood. It's like- oh, How frustrating, right? Yeah. Right. I think some of the conclusions, and I know you and I've talked about it a little bit, conclusions that are drawn about hemolysis not only from this article, but from other things we've read are really practitioner dependent. I think you're right. I think, you know, um, and we were chit-chatting about this just the other day. It's really important that we look at the technique of, of the individual who drew the specimen and, and how they did that as well. Education of the practitioner is, is super important here. And I don't think that we dove into that enough in this article in terms of, you know, what was that like? Exactly what were the practitioners doing in terms of gaining their samples? There's nothing more frustrating than losing a line for, for a vascular access nurse or a bedside nurse, right? For the patients. So, right. Yeah, we're protective of these lines for our patients. That's our job, right? As the nurse sure. and as the vascular access expert. And as you, a leader at a, a large hospital system, it's like, okay, first of all, it, there's the patient component, there's the money component, and then did they get their meds on time? So it could be a length of stay issue as well. For sure, whenever your line isn't working, this is a trifecta, right? I always say this is the big trifecta when your vascular access device isn't working. This impacts the patient in the bed and they're saying, wait a minute, why isn't my line working? That's scary, like what happened? What did you do wrong maybe? Even blaming the practitioners, why did my line clot up? Or why is it not working? Uh, it certainly impacts the caregiver. The caregiver is saying, man, this is bogging up my day. What am I going to do now? Right? right. And it impacts the organization. So there's your trifecta patient, caregiver, organization. Like you said, patients who don't have access bogs things up 
increases length of stay, becomes more complex in terms of care costs. So there you go, bam, trifecta. We have to figure this out for our patients and for our organizations. Right, and we don't, we know there's no patient that wants to get poked needlessly. Right. Not, not for a blood draw, nor for a new device. So it's, I think it's incumbent upon us to get more evidence. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting, all these conversations keep popping my way. And I don't know if you've, you've been engaged in any of these, but organizations are saying, oh, well, we, we, we worry about using the lines too much because we worry about losing the lines or we worry, worry about different types of infections or things that can happen to various types of lines. And then they don't want to use the line for blood draws. Have you heard right. this? Yeah, yeah. I have. Oh, so, I have. Yeah. And that's frustrating. It's got to be incredibly frustrating for the patient. Sure, and, the, sure. and the clinician that has to go in and poke that patient where they already know they have a beautiful spigot, if you will, <laughs> they can just open up. I know, I know. That's, that's Judy's technical term, spigot. I like it. I'm going to use it from now on. You're welcome. That's yours. I'll share. I'll share anytime. So let's okay. go. <laughs> let's go over a couple of the facts of this study because this, this was a good paper. And like you said, it's a great start, but mm -hmm. Some of their conclusions, let's talk about that. What, what are your thoughts? So it, the findings did indicate that, that they were able to do blood draws and that there were low rates of hemolysis in this particular study. This is very interesting. But again, there, with every study, there's limitations. I, I do like these findings in this small study. But again, I wouldn't be comfortable on, you know, with my background in, and knowing the, the strength of this study saying, yep, tomorrow we're all gonna change our practice. What I would be comfortable in knowing is, hey, this is a great small study. It leads us to believe that there's a possibility that with proper training, proper technique, maybe a core group of individuals who are manipulating that line that we could successfully draw labs from our midlines. And maybe we need to learn more about what that is. That's what the findings tell me. Me too. So what, do you, what do you think? I agree with you totally. And I, I do like the start of this, mm -hmm. but I would like to see a lot more specifics. What kind of training did the people get that were involved in the study? Did they use a vacutainer? Did they use a 10cc syringe? Did they use a 3cc syringe? All of the particulars to be able to not homolysize the blood or to homolysize the blood. I think those, those specifics would help me say, okay, this is a safer practice. And now we can have better replication of this study to say, we aren't gonna create this problem. Sure, sure. And you know, we wouldn't be able to, to replicate it without those details. You make a really great point. So that would be something really interesting to know from the researchers, exactly how they, you know, set this up and what was the training like in specific technique. We're talking about, I mean, generally you and I, when we talk, we think about acute care because that's our background for the most part. But sure. what other settings do you think this applies in? I mean, you can see, see midlines in home care for sure. Yeah, definitely. I think so. And we always say, hey, it's the right line for the right patient for the right reason. And we preach this all the time in vascular access. And there's plenty of patients who are going home that don't necessarily need a longer term access, right? Maybe they just need a couple of weeks of antibiotics or a couple of weeks of therapy where a midline would be absolutely appropriate. Right. And so you could see patients in the home care setting. You could see long-term care too. Okay. It depends on what's going on. Right. So I agree. There's I agree. Other settings where you could see this for sure. Let's go a little different route on this. 
I think mm-hmm. the new guidelines from INS are actually spectacular. They did a great job. They, they, taught, they raised the bar. They did raise the bar for sure. Okay. I, I'm um, kudos to them on that. They, at one point on page S126, talk about ensure all clinicians involved with the collection of blood samples have a documented competency with equipment mm-hmm. and technique. Yeah. And I know that's another topic that you and I kind of talked about. And yeah, we debate on this one, right? We do. We so, do. When we say competency, for me, as a leader um, in a large academic medical teaching facility, so when we say we're going to have a competency on file for nurses, we're talking thousands of nurses. Right. And there's a difference between right education and competency. If we say we've educated or we sign off on an original checklist of competency, that's one thing. But then there's the ongoing competency. Ooh, annual competency for blood draws. That one for me seems very difficult to manage. Where do you stop in terms of all of the competencies that you would have for one registered nurse in a hospital, right? We usually reserve competencies for high risk, low volume type procedures. It wouldn't be everyday little things like this. Rather, as a leader, what I would do is promote us to have other types of ways of looking at competency, not traditional checklist, maybe case studies, maybe skills labs, maybe we have is peer review, because that's an important element of our professional practice, right? So I'd say we got to be creative here, but having a checklist on blood draws for thousands of nurses and, and all these houses, I don't know if that's really realistic for us to keep up. I, I agree. And, you know, yes. we think about everything in the crash cart we have to know about. Again, right. high risk, low volume, right. we hope. <laughs> we hope. Yeah. And even doing blood sugars. You know, when you think about this laundry list of competency assessments, yeah. that's going to, you know, many hospitals have gone from an eight-hour competency day down to a four-hour competency day. And where it used to be when I started, I think it was a two-dayer for annual competencies. So. Right. Budget shrink, training shrinks, and they are looking specifically at exactly what you said, low volume, high risk. So I, I don't know about that one either. Yeah. I mean, we could play devil's advocate too, Judy, though, because we know when you have a core group of individuals who are well-trained to do one thing or one, you know, practice, they do it better. The outcomes are better. So we could play devil's advocate here and say, hey, if you did really hammer down on technique with blood draws and you had a core group to do it, would you probably see better outcomes? So we could play devil's advocate here, but I'm just looking at the sustainability of having a competency on file for every single RN. And I'm saying, Ooh, we got to think about this differently. You know, and and definitely you and I have different perspectives as you as a a nurse leader in a giant hospital system and me from the specialty of vascular access at a a granular level is like, okay, even from my perspective, that's a massive undertaking. And I agree with you. We, we know the data is clear that if you have, in our specialty, if you have vascular access specialists mm-hmm. owning everything, we're going to have better outcomes. Right. But, you know, it's, there's some budget issues there. We've got INS again talking about, although long PIVs and midline catheters may be labeled for obtaining blood samples, no evidence is available regarding the techniques or outcomes of this procedure. And I think that goes right back to what you and I were talking about, mm-hmm. about education and parameters of the study. What we're doing, I think Lorella and I both, is we're, we're trying to put a little prod in a couple of you guys listening. <laughs> yeah. 
let's go guys. We need some more re nursing research out there. Let's put it together. And you know what? Nurses always get, they shy away from this. When you say, we have gaps, you need to do nursing research. They all say, oh, I can't do that. I don't know how to do research. That's too hard, right? No, 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 no. Start off small guys. We can do this, you know, start and, and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement also says this, do small tests of change. I say this in pretty much every talk I do, you know, don't try and do world peace and roll it out all at once, do small tests of change. So start off on one unit, try right. something right. on one unit, study it, do more of like a QI, right? Some type of quality improvement, tweak it, get it right, you know, bring some things to the surface about our practice and then just keep adding a little bit to it. And before you know, you may have yourself a good research question that you can formally go do some research with, but it starts out small. So don't overwhelm yourselves. We got this guys. We are professional registered nurses and we can do this type of work to inform our practice for sure. And within this organization, and we have, well, we have so many call of friends that are so entrenched in research that if you really have an interest in this, we have people that will help mentor. Um, yeah. I'm with Come Even on. to great organizations like, like yourselves, uh, Association for Vascular Access, you could reach out to your professional organizations and your colleagues there and say, I've got a great idea. And you will find a network of experts who want to help you with that idea or hook you up with other colleagues. So, you know, be smart, use your resources. Absolutely. My call of friends are like my best resource. We can't know everything for sure. So um, I encourage that. So I think one more thing, and it's going to go back, I believe, to the research that we just talked about is talking about how we should approach the recommendation from INS when they say high rates of homolysis may be offset significantly but with the high rates of parent patient satisfaction using the catheter for blood returns or mm. blood sampling. I'm sorry. Yeah. As part of that trifecta we were talking about, right? So it is the patient in the bed and, and their satisfaction, which is at play here too. And we know in, in healthcare, how much that plays into the big picture, right? Patients experience, and we never focused on it like this when I got into nursing 20 years ago. I mean, we're, not, we're all now the Ritz Carltons of, of healthcare, right? But there's a reason why. Right. <laughs> there's a reason right. why it impacts our reimbursement too, which is wow. Okay, so this does get back to the pocketbook as well. But your patient experience also, for, for me, talks about loyalty and returning to a hospital and the volume that we need to, to continue to treat our communities. So patient experience is important and it needs to be weighed, right? With practice and, and good outcomes. Of course, it's do no harm first and sure. it's patient sure. safety first, but we have to weigh these other elements in and, and patient experience is one of them. It's important. It's hugely important. <laughs> yeah. And we know that if we have a patient with a bad experience, it's 10 times more likely to explode mm -hmm. a patient that gets this exceptional care. And the exceptional care is gonna tell their spouse and their kids and like, oh my gosh, it was beautiful. That patient that had a bad outcome or if they had a negative experience, whew, that goes ugly quick. Yeah, bad news gets shared quick, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think one more thing I wanted to touch upon is talking about the policies themselves. Laurel, on the cliffhanger of talking about policies, I think we'll take a quick break and listen to a word from our sponsors. 
Midline catheters are powerful tools utilized by vascular specialists to meet varied patient needs. Differentiated features can aid in finding the right catheter to meet clinical performance. BD's PowerGlide Pro Midline Catheter with InstaFlash technology, integrated guide wire, body softening polyurethane, and reinforced tip is specifically designed to help ensure effective peripheral IV infusions and a consistent aspiration rate for blood draws. We know methods for blood sampling and collection have a broad impact on clinicians, patients, and operational efficiency. A recent study published in JAVA demonstrated a hemolysis rate of less than 1% using PowerGlide Pro midline catheter for blood sampling. Is your facility looking for ways to improve practice? To learn more about BD Midlines, visit bd.com and search for PowerGlide. That's bd.com. Search word PowerGlide. Now, we know in hospitals, you got to work to your policy because that's your protection. And people put a lot of work into their policies. But make sure as you're making those policies, creating those policies, don't write yourself into a corner, right? Oh, my gosh, yes. Yeah. This is one of my favorite topics, actually. I, and I, no one else really likes to talk about policies and procedures. I mean, I should just put on my dork glasses right now. But it happens to be an area where I spend a lot of my time. Um, and, and policies, yeah, yuck, no one wants to talk about it, but they really truly are in place for a reason. They're the infrastructure, they're the framework that's generally helping us to have a standardized way of practicing things in an organization. They usually follow regulatory, uh, evidence-based guidelines, things to keep us safe and to have a general approach to our care. What they are not is step-by-step procedural manual. That's different than a policy, guys. And a lot of people confuse these two things, right? And, and what happens, and this is real life, this is what I've seen happen over and over again in hospitals, and I implore people to, to stop this from happening. What happens is something bad happens, an event happens, a quality event happens, and, and, some, and someone, a clinician, does something wrong, and they say, well, was that written in the policy? And then a committee of people get together, it's usually not bedside clinicians, and they say, why wasn't this step written in the policy? And then they add it into the policy. And year over year, your policies start getting longer and longer and longer and longer. Your policies should never be like more than 10 pages, even for like the most complex stuff we do, okay? Those are called procedural manuals, and those should be something totally different. Right? And, and so should our policies generally guide us in our practice? Yes. But what are they not an excuse for? Critical thinking. 100%. Clinicians still need to critically think through things. So this is a guideline for me, but it shouldn't tell me, you know, based on this scenario, based on this patient, based on all of the tools I've got in my toolbox as a professional nurse, what's the next step I should take? You know, that's what we should do. I had a professor in college and he used to always joke with us. And he'd say, you know, we're professional nurses. What other professionals do you work with? You work with docs, right? When's the last time that something went wrong on a unit and you heard the doc scream, well, where's the policy manual? I want to go check it. They don't because they're confident in their skills. They're confident in their research and their practice. And, and they know they can critically think through these things. They don't go running to say, what does the policy say? Generally speaking, right? 
But so we as nurses need to use that same type of knowledge and skills and everything in our toolbox to help us make the decisions and just leave the policies as it goes. 100%. And then don't write product into your policy. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh gosh. <laughs> Uh, that's a good one, Judy. A lot of people do that. And then it's a pitfall. You know, you change your product and then you're talking about something different. That's, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A hundred percent. I see yeah. that. And it says specifically use this. It's like, yeah. well, what if that product goes away? Then you have to change <laughs> all your policies. Craziness. Yeah. Craziness. I tell you, well, yeah. this has been so much fun and yes. we got to get you back here more often because thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. You're like the easiest interview in the world because we could sit oh, down do on that. Hey, pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> well, thanks so much. Thank I appreciate you. you so much. And then we're going to see you again soon. I have no doubt about that. All right. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. You can see the entire AVA calendar on the AVA website at www.avainfo.org, which is also where you can join AVA or donate to the AVA Foundation. Don't miss Facebook Fridays, where we are live at noon Eastern Time each week. Toss us a question or give us a like. We're on all the social media platforms. You can follow the Association for Vascular Access on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Pinterest. Make sure you're subscribed to the I Save That podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Pandora, or Google Play Music. Now here comes the legal stuff. The topics discussed on the I Save That podcast are purely for informational purposes. You should personally seek the guidance of clinicians before making any decision that affects your health or the health of your patients. Listeners of this podcast are advised to do their own due diligence when it comes to making vascular access decisions. Our goal is to inform and entertain the healthcare landscape while giving you a starting point for your discussions with your own clinicians and professional advisors. By listening to this podcast, you agree that the host, our guests, our sponsors, and the Association for Vascular Access are not responsible for the success or failure of your health, your career, or any decision you make related to any information we've presented. The I Save That podcast contains segments of copyrighted music that was not specifically authorized to be used but is protected by federal law and the fair use doctrine as cited in section 107 of the U.S. Copyright Act. If you have any specific concerns about this broadcast or our position on fair use defense, please contact us at podcast at avainfo.org. No part of this broadcast shall be reproduced, transmitted, or sold in whole or in part or in any form without the prior written consent of the Association for Vascular Access.